Hail brothers, this is Didact with a domain query. And today's domain query, which I haven't done in a long time, is called onisms and ists. And this is in response to a very good comment left on my Telegram channel, which is private. You can't access it directly. I don't want people to be able to access it anytime they want. You have to access it via an invitation link. And the invitation link is in the description box to this podcast. It's also available on the site itself. And I encourage you to join. I mean, we've got 119 subscribers now. And considering it's a private channel, it's going quite well, really. I'm very pleased with the level of interaction I'm getting. Of course, I would prefer to have more, but it's great to be able to talk and speak and interact directly with people who read the site on a more sort of real-time basis rather than through comments. And there's a lot of good discussion there, and uh, pretty much every day, not always, because fact is I'm lazy, but pretty much every day I do kind of a daily voice message update for the entire channel, giving my thoughts on current events, what I'm seeing going on in the world, and so on and so forth. And in response to my voice message from May 9th, where I talked about the significance to Russians of Victory Day, how important it is to their national character. I got a very, very good comment from, I think, a Czech bloke um, who goes by the name or the handle of RT. Now, his handle does not stand for Russia today, obviously, but he is, I think, from Czech Republic, from Czechia. I could be wrong, but, uh, you know, fine. Um, and he had some very, very useful thoughts to add. I agree completely with what he says. I just think uh, it's worth expanding on uh, what he wrote a little bit. Um, so I'm going to read out his full quote, and then I'm going to offer up some expanded ideas on the points that he raised. So here's what he has to say. Quote, History has a sense of irony. As someone born in a former communist country, I remember celebrations of May 9, where Americans could not be mentioned Although everybody knew they liberated the western part of the country up to Pilsen and perhaps could reach Prague, but were not allowed by political decision. Today, western leftists are busy to cancel the Russians. It is not to say we had no love for our Russian liberators. I remember my grandfather telling a story about him walking with Soviet soldiers looking for Germans that were hiding in apartments. Once my grandpa, a young boy back then, opened the door of an apartment, and was welcomed by a bullet. Fortunately, the German guy missed, and the Russians shot him dead. Only after the communists came to power, we started to hate Russians. Another historical irony is, although more hated, fascism is probably better than communism. Right-wing governments tend to rule their countries better, and our historical experience is there were less casualties during the Nazi period than during Bolshevik rule. Last but not least, I consider likely Suvorov's theory that the German Operation Barbarossa in fact saved Europe from communism, as Stalin was preparing to flood Europe with his own troops, and the Germans caught him by surprise with their Drang Nacht Osten. It's not to diminish the heroism of Russian people during the war, just to point out that history is a little bit more complicated and Russian understanding of it stinks of propaganda, partly at least. End of quote. Now, as I said, every single thing he said, or he wrote in this comment, is correct. I agree with every single point. 
there are three interesting ideas that I want to unpack a little bit. One or the first is how history has this weird sense of irony, of, of karma almost. The second is this whole issue of how the Russians became so hated in Europe itself. And we're now seeing the consequences of that hatred today. And the third is uh, this idea of fascism being potentially better than communism, at least in terms of economic and political management. And the fourth, there are actually four ideas, uh, is this notion of Suvorov's uh, theory that the German invasion of Russia was a preemptive strike. And again, the theme is that history kind of has a karmic bitch slap to it. With respect to this whole idea of um, Americans not being allowed to be mentioned, yeah, that's true. I mean, look, part of the mythology among Russians of May 9th is that they, and more or less they alone, saved Europe from fascism. Now, the more measured members of the Russian body politic understand this is not true. If you listen to uh, Putin's speech on May 9th, this year in particular, he paid special tribute to the American veterans who fought in World War II, and he honored their sacrifice. He respected the sacrifices of Western European veterans who fought and died to liberate Europe. But this is a relatively minority view among Russians. If you listen to Russians in general, they will tell you that Russia saved Europe. They will tell you the Soviet Union saved Europe, really. They will tell you that the Soviet Union was responsible for destroying fascism in Europe. And they're mostly correct, mostly, because the Soviets lost 27 million people, 27 million people fighting back the Germans. That's the truth. The Soviet Union lost 27 million people. They formed the bulk of the casualties by far of what they call the Great Patriotic War. And it is their blood and their sacrifices, the deaths of their ancestors, that bled the Wehrmacht dry in Europe. That's the truth. That's absolutely correct. There's no question of that, at least there shouldn't be any question of that. But it is not to say that the Allied forces in Europe did nothing much other than fight in you know, relatively minor battles. It's just, it's just not true. That also is not true. The fact is that the Allied landing at Normandy Beach um, caught Germany in the between the prongs of uh, a, a very, very dangerous nutcracker. And they couldn't escape after that. Um, now, a million men landing in France was not really comparable to what the armies in uh, of the Soviet Union were fielding at the time, which was millions more pushing westward. Um, but if it had not been for the Russians absorbing all of those horrendous losses, the Soviets in general absorbing those horrendous losses, 
uh, the Western armies would not have been able to complete that landing. And that's just, that's, that's a fact. I mean, the Belarusians keep a database of about 9,000 villages, uh, which were basically destroyed in World War II. And that database shows that many of these villages lost pretty much all of their inhabitants. All of them were exterminated. Uh, they were starved to death. They were shot. They were burned alive, locked in their homes and cathedrals and churches. And the Nazis would pile firewood up and light it and burn them to death. It was horrifying. They were worked to death as slaves um, to, to power the Nazi war machine. All of that happened. That's all true. That's, that's genuinely all true. But there is a bit, a bit of myth making. And I don't, again, I don't want to diminish or demean the sacrifices of the Russians and the Soviets in World War II. They sacrificed more than anybody else did by far in pushing fascism out and destroying it. But there is a tendency in the Russian mind to mythologize the Great Patriotic War to the point where it's like it was all the Soviet Union's doing. And there is a bit of a problem with this that we see reflected in Banderistan today. If you listen to Ukrainians talk, I mean, they're, they're so brainwashed at this point, it's, it's genuinely shocking. Uh, the Ukrainian government or some Ukrainian ambassador, I think it was the Ukrainian ambassador of Poland or Germany, I forget which, uh, yesterday posted something biblically stupid on Twitter, where he said something along the lines of, it was Ukraine that liberated Berlin. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was Russia. It was the Soviet Union. Ukraine absorbed the brunt of the um, German offensive early in the war. That's true. Ukraine absorbed a tremendous number of losses during the war itself and battles of Kharkov uh, and uh, Kiev and uh, Donetsk and, you know, I mean, you name it, you know, there were battles all throughout what is now today being fought over in the Banderistan War. It's, it's the same exact route of entry into the guts of Russia. I mean, that's why the Russians are so pissed about NATO attempts to expand into Ukraine. For them, it's like history is repeating all over again. They, they're watching a hostile army gathering on the very place where the Germans invaded their homeland. And you wonder why they're so pissed off? Like, guys, I mean, come on, this isn't difficult to figure out. But, you know, um, it's, it's astonishing to me. The, the American government has all these Russian history majors running around, or supposedly, you know, Russian history majors, supposedly with degrees in international relations. And not one of them can actually look at a map and figure out where the Germans invaded. It's really not that hard. I mean, it's on all the history books. But uh, anyway, so the Russians do tend to overweight a little. I'm not going to say much, but a little bit their contributions to the war, the, the, the great uh, patriotic war. Again, it's not much. I mean, in the final analysis, it's really not. But there is a tendency, and I'm choosing my words very carefully here, there is a tendency among some Russians to mythologize the great patriotic war to the point where nobody else pretty much mattered. And 
again, choosing my words carefully, this is not to say that this is a common view among all Russians. The educated classes certainly understand it was more complex than that. And the educated classes in particular respect and admire the Western contributions to the war. But they see and believe that, and with justification, that it was the Russians and the Soviets that won that war. And when they came into power in the conquered territories um, after the war ended, that mythologizing, that myth-making kind of took hold deep in these countries, such as East Germany, uh, Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia, as it's now known, uh, Poland, and so on. And it is indeed funny, as RT says, how history has kind of cycled back or circled on itself. Western powers now seem to think that the West won the war. That's just, that's garbage. That's outright ridiculous. That's outright nonsense. The West did not win World War II in the European theater. In the Japanese, in the Pacific theater, yes, I agree. But not in the European theater. In the European theater, it was a predominantly, overwhelmingly Soviet victory. That's the truth. But now we have Westerners running around basically acting as though the Soviet Union played an incidental role um, in the Second World War. And that is unconscionable. That is ridiculous. And, and it should not be tolerated. The Western left is doing exactly what the Western left always does. It's trying to rewrite and revise history. And the Russians aren't having it. So that's, that's a, a big bone of contention right now. Um, the other point that, uh, the next point that RT ra raised is about how it was only after the commies came to power that the people of the subjugated countries truly began to hate the Russians. And that's true. The Russians behaved in astonishingly barbaric ways when they occupied and conquered those countries. The Soviet Union was an empire. I mean, let's be honest about that. It was an empire. And, you know, it, we have a tendency, particularly among my generation, which still sort of understands what the Second World War was about. Um, the generation after mine has no clue. But among my generation, we have this sort of tendency to think of good versus evil. And it, it really wasn't quite that simple. It just wasn't. Communism was evil, but it was fighting something evil as well, fascism. So... Who was the greater evil? You know what I mean? But when the, when the Soviet Union, which was Russian dominated, ruled over places like Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia at the time, Poland and so on and so forth, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, the Baltic states, um, all of these uh, border territories, which are now deeply hostile to Russia, the reason they're deeply hostile to Russia is because of the way the Russians treated them. I remember I was in London um, two and a half years ago, and we were sitting at a restaurant uh, in Notting Hill, a really nice place, uh, it's a Jamaican restaurant, and the waitress came over and I, we could see that she was, um, she was sort of Eastern European looking, and we asked her, hey, uh, where are you from? And she said, well, I'm part, part uh, Lithuanian, part Russian. Whoa, okay, that's interesting. And she talked uh, to us a little bit about her background. 
And she told us that her father was Russian and had come over with the Russian military. And the Russians had sent a bunch of people over as colonists to sit in Lithuania and kind of breed out the local population of Lithuanians. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Lithuanians really began to exact vengeance upon the Russian colonizers, occupiers, as they called them, with, again, justification, because the local language was suppressed and repressed and squelched. Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian, um, all of these, these, these ancient languages were suppressed by the Russians, and Russian was imposed upon them instead. And this bred tremendous anger and anxiety among the local population. And when the, the Soviet Union fell, these same people, of course, brought back their own traditions. The same is happening in Ukraine today. The Ukrainians felt suppressed by the Russian presence in their lands. But it's more complicated than that even, because Ukraine is a Frankensteinian monster of a country. It's stitched together from various bits of other countries. That's, the, that's just the truth. Um, Galicia really belongs to Poland. Um, uh, Zakarpatia or, uh, and Transcarpathia belong to Hungary and Romania, really. Uh, the entire south and east of what is today Ukraine is really uh, the Taurid region and Bessarabia, you know, Moldova, more or less, uh, you know, that, that bit that sticks out between Moldova, Romania, and the Black Sea coast, that, that bit, that's Bessarabia. And the original flag of Bessarabia, by the way, looks like the Russian flag, except for the double-headed eagle on it. I mean, you know, you can't get much more Russian than that. That whole region is basically Russian. So there's a huge population of ethnic Russians in there, but then in the middle of this, this huge, massive country, this, this stitched together beast of a country that, that nobody quite understands, is this big fat population of ethnic Ukrainians. And they have a completely different culture and completely different outlook to the Russian speakers to the east and the south. Now, when the Soviet Union fell, and Ukraine became its own country again, it kind of had to figure its way out. And for a long time, they stuck with what worked for them, which was old Russian traditions and culture. But over time, the country began to break apart again. And really, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that 20 years ago, really, Ukraine should have split apart and should have become multiple independent states, but that didn't happen for a, a very large number of reasons, which are too complex to go into here. It's funny how history repeats itself, because the very same people that felt themselves suppressed and squelched and, and, and denigrated by the Russians, and the Ukrainians have deep, deep historical reason to hate the Russians, really. Going back a hundred years to the time of the Golodomor, the Great Hunger, Seriously, I mean, between 4 and 10 million Ukrainians died because of Stalin's famines. No one really knows the true number. All we know today is that Stalin imposed literally genocidal policies upon the Ukrainians, taking their grain back to Russia to stop Russians from starving, and Georgians and, and other Soviet republics from starving, and starved the Ukrainians themselves to death and did so 
as a matter of vengeance against the Ukrainians for rebelling against the Bolsheviks way back in the 1920s. I mean, this is how deep the, the ethnic and historical tensions go in this part of the world. It is amazing how history cycles back on itself and how Ukraine, when it got the chance, imposed extreme restrictions and repressions upon the Russian-speaking people. And now here we are again at the point where Russia has to fight a war to get back her historical territories. This will end, as I've said so many times by now, with Banderistan being broken up into multiple countries. And the we already see the results. I mean, the Lugansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic will both hold accession votes among the people to rejoin the Soviet, or to rejoin Russia, really. Um, the Kherson region will become the Kherson People's Republic. Zaporozhye region, once it's fully cleansed, will probably become the Zaporozhye People's Republic. Odessa and Nikolaev, when they are cleansed, will probably become breakaway republics as well. And all of these republics will probably vote to join uh, a greater Crimea, which will in turn be part of a new, revitalized, re-energized Russia. And the Russian borders are going to expand westward. And Russia will finally have that buffer state that it's wanted for so, so long. And Ukraine will essentially become a useless, broken, bankrupt rump state, which is good for literally nothing other than spreading Nazism. So again, it is funny how history repeats itself. And it is funny how acts of repression by one party inevitably lead to acts of repression in return by another. So it's something that Americans should be damned careful about because your time is coming. And I'm saying this as a friend of your country. I'm saying this as somebody who loves America, loves Americans. Your time is coming. And it is going to be horrific when it comes. You're going to see your country broken apart in the same way that you broke apart other countries. And you're going to see the same age-old blood feuds in the way that you exploited those blood feuds in other countries. Mark my words, it is coming for you. So prepare. The third point that um, RT raised is about the difference between fascism and communism and how fascism is a better system. Now, I want to make it very clear. Neither of us is endorsing fascism. Neither of us is endorsing communism. Readers and listeners know full well how I feel about communists. As far as I'm concerned, communists should be shot on sight as a matter of public safety. That is my view, and I'm very open about it, really. I really do not like communists. I have the same attitude as Rafał Ganganowicz does, or did. Uh, if somebody once asked him, he's a legendary Polish mercenary, which somebody brought to my attention on the side. It was hilarious. And uh, in a comment, you know, he, he brought it to my attention. I was like, uh, oh, that's a cool guy. Um, I went and looked him up. This guy, somebody asked him once, uh, how does it feel to kill another human being? And this guy literally cool as a cucumber said, I wouldn't know. I've only ever killed communists. Uh, okay, there you go. Um, now, with respect to fascism and communism, what's the main difference? People like to think that fascism is extreme right-wing ideology and communism is extreme left-wing ideology. And that's just not true. The reality is that fascism and communism have identical roots. They both go back to Karl Marx. But seriously, they do. 
The difference between the two has nothing to do with left and right wing. It has everything to do with how you subdivide people. Communism operates on the basis of class. Separate people based on class and make them fight each other. And make class struggle the basis for achieving power. Fascism, as defined by Giovanni Gentile in Il Dottrino del Fascismo, says this class struggle doesn't work. Why? Because the examples that Karl Marx used in formulating his theory never worked out. Karl Marx thought that class struggle would be most likely to take off in places like Britain and Germany because there was this vast underclass of miserable workers who were being oppressed by rich bourgeois landlords and uh, merchants, and that was the best place to begin class struggle. And that was wrong, because these were also free market economies, by and large. And there is nothing better at generating wealth than a free market economy. So inevitably, these oppressed classes began to rise up in wealth, because that's what a market economy does. In Russia, that was where the revolution took place. Gentile, observing this, realized the way to split peoples apart was not on the basis of class. It was on the basis of nationalism, of national, of national identity, of nation, um, nation states, if you will. And how do you define a nation or a national identity? Well, I mean, I've been over it many times. It's shared faith, shared language, shared culture or shared history, shared traditions, and shared race. These are the five defining factors of a nation. Fascism operates on the basis of splitting peoples apart on national lines, along the lines of these five axes. In this respect, fascism is more workable than communism because it splits people along lines that actually exist and make sense. Furthermore, fascism is economically more workable than communism in practice, because fascists tend to respect private property rights more than communists. And as a result, when you have respect for private property rights, you don't have the kinds of insane mass slaughter famines that you do in communist countries, like you did in Russia, like you did in China, like you did in Cambodia. Fascist countries generally did not have those problems. They had other problems, but they didn't have these problems. And if you look at the prime examples of fascist countries, remember what fascism stands for. Fascist is a bundle of sticks. The idea behind fascism is you can break one stick easily, you cannot break a bundle of sticks because together uh, they are stronger than one. You know, that's, that's the whole philosophy behind fascism. And that is what fascism really is. It's, it is a collectivist ideology, but it's not nearly as collectivist as communism is. And that's really, I mean, that, honestly, that's the basis of the argument between fascism and communism. The two hate each other, not because they're so different, but because they're so similar. It's, you know that old skit in uh, the, the Monty Python skit, right? The, the hilarious one in The Life of Brian. 
the, the one about the Judean people's front versus the people's front of Judea, right? That's literally all it is. That's, that's what it comes down to. But it's that fundamental doctrinal difference of where you define the, the split in the, the ways in which you split people that are the source of the hatred between communists and fascists. That's it. The rest of their doctrines are basically the same, except fascists have more respect for private property than communists do. And that's why, as an economic system, fascism is more workable. That is not to say that fascism is a good thing. That is not to say that fascism is a good idea. It's just a less horrifically stupid idea than communism is. That's all I'm saying. And I want to be very clear about that. Fascism and communism are both idiotic, evil, disgusting, awful systems. It's just that fascism is slightly less disgusting than communism is. And if I'd had, you know, honestly, I mean, if it were up to me, yeah, we'd shoot fascists too. It's, pff, doesn't make any difference to me because they're both left-wing. Literally, they, they, they really are both left-wing. Um, last point that, uh, that RT raises is about uh, Suvarov's thesis. Uh, I don't have much time to refer to this, and I haven't read the book, but this is a revisionist historian's take on why um, Germany actually invaded Russia. And it has to do with the massive military buildup along Russia's border that took place at the same time, really, as Stalin was purging the Red Army. It's, it's an absolutely fascinating idea, but as far as I can tell, it's completely factual. I mean, you can't get away from what Suvorov was saying. His arguments are airtight, based on the facts, at least. The thing is, the Germans basically saw this going on. I mean, their intel was very clear on the subject. Once they divided up Poland between uh, Russia, between the Soviets and Germany, uh, thanks to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the Germans went away and said, okay, now we need to finish off this war in the West and we'll finish you know, doing whatever we need to do. And the whole of Europe is ours to conquer. But then they could see in the East the the Soviets were building up a truly biblical army to try to take all of Europe. Hitler, seeing this, observing it, decided to invade first because he thought this could end in utter disaster for, for them. I mean, he was terrified of the sheer size of the Red Army. And so Suvorov's thesis goes, he sent the Wehrmacht to invade um, during Operation Barbarossa. But a number of things caused him to stall, chief among which was the exceptionally large amount of time that he had to devote to sorting out the mess in Greece. Um, he had to send the Wehrmacht to sort that out, and that delayed him by about six weeks, which in turn delayed his ability to fight during the summer, the, the Wehrmacht's ability to fight during the summer, and they got bogged down even though they were, you know, making tremendous progress into Russia, I mean, the Red Army had absolutely no idea what the hell hit them. Um, uh, Stalin was like frozen with indecision and couldn't deal with all of the masses of information coming out of him. He just had no clue. It was blitzkrieg of the highest order. And it's funny how the historical parallels work with Russia and Ukraine today. It really is. It's astonishing. 
History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Well, guess what happened in Russia or in, in Banderistan in February of this year? February, uh, I think 19th it was, or maybe a little bit earlier than that. Elensky, the clown puppet in high heels, goes to uh, Budapest and essentially um, revokes, you know, all, I forget exactly what it was, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was Munich. Anyway, um, he, he goes to some European city and he essentially walks back the Ukrainian commitment to disarmament and says Ukraine may pursue nuclear weapons. And I mean, that's a like a huge honking red light goes off in Moscow as a result. The Russians observe a massive military buildup by the Ukrainians in the Donbass. Putin preemptively recognizes the Donbass republics on February 22nd. He sends a warning to the Ukrainians telling them, get your troops the hell out of Donbass, otherwise yeah, we can't guarantee their safety. The Ukrainians ignore him. They Now, the Russians can see this buildup happening. They have the intel and we've you know, I've, I've mentioned on my Telegram channel, I've mentioned on the site, I've mentioned in a number of places, there was a big buildup of Ukrainian troops, particularly the Joint Force Operation uh, in the Donbass, which is now in danger of being destroyed, actually, in the Kramatorsk-Slavyansk conurbation. The Ukrainians were building up with the intention of massacring the separatists, as they call them, in basically in March. And that would have rolled them right up to the borders of Russia itself, meaning right up to the borders with Belgorod or Belgorod, uh, Kursk, Rostov na Donu, uh, Tver, and a number of other critical Russian cities within a couple of hours of the Ukrainian border. This was unacceptable. So the Neo Tsar did the one thing, the only thing that he could do. He struck first. And he struck first, and he struck hard, and he struck deep into Ukraine. And he and the Russian general staff decided to use maneuver warfare to pin down the Ukrainian troops, confuse the hell out of them, destroy their command and control structures, and stop them from being able to fight effectively. And guess what? It worked. Ukraine today is a broken and beaten state. They just don't know it yet. They have no hope of winning this war. And they're going to die down to the last Ukrainian unless they surrender in the Donbass. They're going to die down to the last Ukrainian in Nikolaev and Odessa and elsewhere in Ukraine unless they see sense and give up. And that's not going to happen, unfortunately, sadly. So that's the reality we face. And again, I will say again, history often repeats, uh, often does not, does not repeat, but it often rhymes. And that's exactly what we see today. Well, uh, I think I've gone on for quite long enough. I hope you found this enjoyable and historically informative. And I thank RT for his excellent comment. It was really very helpful, supremely uh, um, thought-provoking, and uh, allowed me to go on like this for a while. So this has been Domain Query. I'm going to rename this. I'll just say uh, I started out with on isms and ists. I'm going to rename this. It, this is Domain Query. History often rhymes. And I am Didact, signing off.